welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. Every once in a while, the holidays impact our show schedule. This is one of those weeks. So sit back and enjoy a selection of some of our best moments from this past year, along with the brand new Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 14th, 2018. I-94 spoke with personal essayist Megan Steelstra about her work and her life in 1990s-era Chicago. Steelstra talked about learning her craft, why stand-up performances are essential for a working writer, and how bartending made her a better storyteller. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Megan, it's, it's a delight to have you here. Thank you for uh, having me. Megan, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a local Chicago author. We love having local Chicago authors on this show. And I wanted to start off because these are personal essays, and our paths actually have crossed at a, a notorious uh, Wicker Park bar, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Megan, let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in writing personal essays? It's a form that... Um, Obviously, Montaigne made famous, and I think most of us, when we write intensely personal stuff, look to him for inspiration. But it's also something that uh, is very uncomfortable. It's something that when you write it, it makes you uncomfortable, probably. I know that when family members read it, uh, it probably makes them uncomfortable. And there's a there's a lack of comfort and, a, a I think, a demand on the reader to expect discomfort when they learn personal, very personal things about you, such as your sex life, things that have gone bad in your life, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think that is, of course, what makes the form very riveting. But it's a, it's a distinct choice that an author has to make because um, a lot of times, uh, and I'm speaking, you know, as kind of a semi-writer myself, you know, sometimes we go into fiction because we, we want to write truth but come about it from a different way. Sometimes we write nonfiction. We've had a lot of guys in the show that do histories and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and that's another way to get at truth. Mm-hmm. But this is a very distinct and, and, also, and very kind of um, deep uh, deeply human way to do it. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do this particular form of writing? Um, I'm going to go way over here to answer that question, and then I'm going to bring it back around. So just roll with me for a minute. But so in, in high school, I was one of those, uh, I think, special kind of geeks who would cut class in order to hang out in the library. Maybe some of you are, wow, some of you are my, my people. Never heard of that. Right? Um, and so I, I would sit there. It, it par- partially, it was a coping mechanism, right? Because my father was the principal, which brings its all, all sorts of other stories and you know like people threatening to shave my head and then you know you if your dad's the principal you can't you can't smoke weed out back which is really like why do we go to high school if yeah, not for that and um, that's why i skipped right and yeah. so my father was the ap humanities teacher so, so you see and my we mother see each was other. the HP geography teacher right okay so you see yeah, you you, you understand yeah. but anyway so i would go in the library and i would sit on the floor and i would read all of these books and um and the kind of the the the, the lightning bolt sort of ton of bricks moment for me i was reading uh Black Boy by Richard Wright. It's a memoir. And there's this scene in chapter 13 where he is sitting on the floor of a library and he is reading, he's, I think he's reading a book by Dreiser. And so, so this is an African-American man, an adult man in the, the Jim Crow South. So he's reading this novel by a, uh, a white writer and he talks about how the, the novel let him get into the mind of someone who was different from him. And it was this huge like meta moment. Like here I was, this 16-year-old girl in a very small sheltered um, white town in Southeast Michigan, and I'm I'm kind of having this like, the, like the, this connective experience with this man in in the the Jim Crow South, and it really blew my mind. And um, I think that, that that was sort of the moment that the the world cracked open for me a little bit. And 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 I wanted to know how to do that. I wanted to I wanted to learn how to write and, and make connections the the way that he was doing. So so I had a few false starts, but I ended up uh, coming to Chicago in 1995 uh, to study fiction. So the fiction is 
where I started with all of this. And I think that really contributes a lot to why I write personal essays is because my first training was in uh, scene construction, character development, place description, uh, tension building, right? Like all these craft tools of, of fiction and storytelling. Um, so I went to, to undergrad to learn how to write like that. I went to graduate school to learn how to teach that way. I studied arts education. Um, and I paid for all of that college because this stuff is expensive, right? Uh, waiting tables and tending bar. Uh, mostly in Wicker Park, like between 1995 to 2005. I worked at the Bongo Room, which is a brunch restaurant. They have a lot of locations right now. And to this day, people stop me on the street and they're like, oh my God, I know you. And I'm like, I know. Well, like I, I wrote these, these books. And they're like, no, you served me pancakes. <laughs> like in 1998, or you made my Bloody Marys. And what was in those Bloody Marys? And like on the train, people come up to me and they want to know the Bloody Mary recipe because it's very... In their you know. defense, so those white chocolate pretzel pancakes at the I Bongo know. Room. I know. People, people asked me if there's uh, if if they put cocaine in them because like people would just <laughs> yeah, come, back and come back and come back and come back. I thought um, it was morphine actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, who who know? I I can the the owners and the chef to this day are, are dear friends of mine, and I can hear John like, "Don't say that there's cocaine in my food. What are you <laughs> what are you doing?" But it is just incredible food. Anyway, so I would be there behind the bar, and I'm I'm making mimosas. I'm making Bloody Marys. And, you know, I, I think I have some bartenders on the mic with me r right now. And, and you know that, that so much of that work is listening to stories. So it was kind of this really interesting experience where, where I started noticing that the same techniques that people were using to tell me stories were the same techniques of storytelling that I was reading with Richard Wright and Kafka and Joan Didion and, and Toni Morrison and all these writers who I loved. Um, and I could start tracing back, um, like... Uh, direct address and repetition and, um, uh, and so, you know, so really what are the connections between oral storytelling and written storytelling? So I ended up signing up with a, a Chicago storytelling collective called Second Story. Um, and uh, so we tell stories in restaurants and bars around the city and I worked with our education arm. So it was uh, uh, helping support people in telling their own stories even if they didn't have any of that kind of writing or performance background. So it was there that I really got into personal essays. Uh, because specifically, that that's what Second Story was about, was telling true stories about yourself, the same way that you would tell them to friends over wine or coffee. Or Are they still around? They are, yeah. Okay. yeah. They're, I mean, when we started it, there were four or five of us in a basement, and now it's a company of 60 people, and they do three or four shows a month, and they travel around. I'm, I'm less involved than I, was, than, I was, than I was back then. But that was a huge part of it for me was... Um, was listening to all of these stories of other people. Uh, and so really the first time the word essay was ever attached to my name was when I got the email saying that one of these pieces had been selected for the Best American Essays. And then I was like, essay, whoa. Because I'd always use the word story. Uh, and, you know, we can dig into the, you know, the great, you know, there are all sorts of purists who will fight about the, the differences of that. But, um, but for me, it has a lot to do with craft, I think. Posible. Posible. 
The Ponderers spoke to Terry Genderbender, the Mexican-born American frontwoman of Les Boucherettes and frequent collaborator of the Melvins. Terry discussed power, music, and feminism with Sandra Trevino. The Ponderers airs every second and fourth Monday at 6 p.m. So just to give you a little bit of context, I just chopped it up to show to where she's talking about um, the stuff that she was going through before starting this new recording. And she talks about the video where she dresses as a warrior. And then she just talks a little bit about other stuff. So it's a, it's a quick interview, just a few you know, highlights of it. And then after we'll listen to a song. She will be here on Saturday at Taste of Chicago with Flaming Lips and Half Gringa, who's joining us in studio in a few minutes. So let's take a listen to this interview. And the first question to her was like, what was your state of mind? What were you thinking about? How did this recording go? Enjoy. This is The Ponderers with Terry Gender Bender. Have you worked through this, through the music, or are you still like exploring what you want to do about it? Oh, definitely working through it with the music because it has me, it leads me to get it out of my shell. Like, for example, because of the music, I, you know, I've, I've been able to find another musical family to, to, to play my songs with and, and rehearse together with and thus we're going on tour together. So it's a, that's the nice part where I'm out of my shell and surrounded by, you know, by, by my musical brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And... And then um, now we're taking it to the next step where I'm actually using the music and, and, and the experiences as an, a, a perfect excuse to look for for help. Like I'm looking into advocacy treatment centers to try to understand more my genetic tree and, and, and just meet other different people with the, that are going through the same issues, which is having mental health issues and family. And, and talk, finding dialogue to talk about Instead of ignoring that elephant in the tree, right, or in the corner, <laughs> <laughs> the elephant in the room. <laughs> the video for Spider and Waves. You're in a warrior outfit, and you've mentioned it's in honor of your grandmother. Can you tell me about that? It's really interesting because I found this out recently that when my mother was younger, and her brothers, well, my, my, well, what would you say, grand uncles and grand aunts, what they would have a ceremony. And a custom and a once a, a month basis, they, where they dress up in their traditional Chichi Mekan uh, costumes, or their and 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 just thank thank God for everything that they that they found each other, that their spirits found each other within the family circle. So, and my mother and my grandmother was the percussionist with the with the with the, uh, the leather skin over the drum beat, and she keep the the, the beat. So I thought, like, that's insane. I just recently found this out. So music has been, in a way, part of, you know, my bloodline. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes me proud. Because, and, 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 yeah, there's lots of things where lately in the dialogue is there's, there's things where we're ashamed of, of our culture, where people say, oh, well, I'm ashamed to be this or that. But I'm about to make it better. And I think it's also good to have a dialogue where we're, we're proud of our, our cultures and, and, and celebrate the differences of what makes our culture special. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a positive way, you know, which could always be taken in a negative way. You know, like, oh, well, what about all these paintings in the museums, you know, with the politically incorrect titles, blah, blah, blah. You know, we need to take them down. But I think, you know, history, that's what history is there for, you know, for us to look back on and, and learn to not to repeat the same things in the future or, or repeat the things that we want to be repeated, depending on what shows, yeah. what works. 
In the video, I also noticed, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, there's this calmness when you see the shadows of the uh, uh, musicians playing, and then there's the euphoria of you dancing and stuff. Was that intentional? Oh, that's, that's awesome that you noticed that. That's, that was definitely uh, talked about before, before the liner notes of the, with the director. That um, what basically want, we wanted to transmit a feeling of, of disconnection with other people, and, and, and sometimes they represent like these shadowy strangers that even though they're supposed to be your family and everything, they see them as a stranger or your empty, lonely feeling. So a lot of your songs obviously are, you know, anthems of empowerment for many of us. What is one song that you can tell me that is that for you? Oh, my Lord. Okay. For me? Mm-hmm. Damn, I think it's, it's, um, well, recently it's Secret Joven, and, it, and, and I'm not biased. I'm not biased. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm featured <laughs> in this song, but it has nothing to do with me, I swear. <laughs> Secret Joven de Alice Bag. Okay. And it's an anthem that I've been having stuck in my head. I mean, I just turned 29 recently, so, you know, it's like, you know, the age does not define you, all right? Nope. People that are ages. Oh, well, it does define you to some sort, but not, you know, you know, it shouldn't restrict you. Right. So that's what I love about Alice Bagg's song. You know, Secreto, like, it turns a dollar, 99 cent dollar store, and there's some women behind her snickering behind saying, oh, look, she's too old to have blue hair. What the hell? Who does she think she is? And that's how the song starts. And then all of a sudden, it breaks up to this beautiful musical ballad of, oh, yeah, they can, they can think, oh, they me, they want. I'm still going to be me. I don't know. It's really cool. It made me cry. Smith spoke to the curious case of Kanye West in his opening monologue this week. Smith spoke about West's tweets, his seeming embrace of Trump, and whether or not the artist needs help. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. So I, I got to do it now while the spirit is in me because it's really ridiculous to even be having this conversation, but I'm going to just try to spell this out for you. And you might hear this again um, in that I am on uh, 26 North Halsted, um, this weekend, George Blaze, my man, thank you, thank you to DJ, all that stuff, thanks. Um, so this week, Kanye West, and I know y'all are like, ah, but hold fast, just hear me out, because I haven't had a chance to say anything, I'm gonna say my piece. Kanye West, uh, did a two-hour interview with Charlamagne the God, which I have not seen yet, that I understand is very revealing, it, it says a lot about what's what's been going on with him, what he's going through, etc. I missed all that. Uh, what I did see, though, was the TMZ interview. And on TMZ, Mr. West decided that he was going to espouse his free thinking philosophy. 
Having taken a little bit of philosophy in my life, studied a little bit of philosophy, a person who is a free thinker generally has an agenda, and that agenda is rooted in some form of truth. It is something that is truthful to them that they feel they can share that truth and other people will either buy into it or they won't. Essentially, that's how the world works. Either you agree with something or you don't. Mr. West got on TMZ and decided to say something that is probably, if not the most asinine thing anyone could ever say, the most ignorant. And it's not, it's not bad to be ignorant. And, and, and hear me out. Ignorance can be, you can, you can flip the switch on ignorance. You can make someone that's ignorant into someone that's knowledgeable about that subject. So if a person is ignorant about how, uh, on the most mundane level, how ice cream is made, you can teach them and then they'll learn. And then they aren't ignorant to that anymore if you follow. He said something about slavery that wasn't just ignorant, it was insulting. Within that, the discussion on a bigger level about slavery in relation to the United States of America, and not just here, but slavery in other parts, and, and there's still a lot of slavery, right? In, in, in that bigger discussion about slavery, what got lost in the translation is that we don't have the conversation about slavery, so we're not talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. We're talking at it. How dare him say that? I'm doing it. How dare him say that? That was wrong. I was ignorant. Blah, blah, blah. But not about the trauma behind it. Not about the, the money that was made off of it. Not about how uh, insurance companies like New York Life benefited from it. We're not having that conversation. So since we're not going to have that conversation, fine. Let's have the one that we're going to have. You cannot be in the position, no human being with a heart and a soul in them can be in the position to ever say that taking a person against their will was a choice that they had. Essentially, they did, I guess, because they could have died. That was the other choice. Come with, come with me or you will die. So there's your, okay, choice. Him saying that on the heels of him saying how Donald Trump is his homeboy. Two of the most ignorant things any person could possibly say and have another person believe them. We are living in a moment where we need every ally we can get. And this dude gets on TMZ and say what you want about TMZ, but I'm sorry to break this news to you. They are credible. They're also incredible, but they're credible. Gets on TMZ, goes into their newsroom and starts flipping out. There's an extended part of that videotape, too, that people didn't see where he apologizes to the young man that was that basically told him, dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. But I don't care about that. 
I hear him on the apology, but that's when you get to the point of he wanted to upset people by his comment, which meant that he had already planned this out. He immediately was like, man, I know I offended you and I offended all the black people today. You got to watch the whole tape. He said that. I know people that are close to, the, to, to that man, like really close. And in my conversation with them, albeit over the social media uh, um, transport, if you will, my conversation with them was you need to pull his coat and talk to him and explain to him that he was wrong for what he said. Let's pause right there. This morning, I heard a brother on the radio lay into him and basically said he needs to be shut up. And it sounded a lot like we need to get rid of him to me. And that's irresponsible, too. We have lost the sense of being able to tell someone you are messing up. Can I help you fix your problem? For all of the love that this man has received, this situation is fixable, I believe. You just need to educate. This isn't R. Kelly being a slime ball. This isn't Bill Cosby. Oh, I got something special for him. Put it in the drink. None of that. This is a different thing. Because he said something that he's ignorant about. And he could be retaught. And not be so ignorant. There's that. I personally don't hold a, a grudge against him. I think he's been gone from us for a long time. I think the best part of him left us years ago. Without going all off into it, I know what it's like to go through trauma. I might as well, since I've already opened up this door. When I was six years old, my mother died. I'm 50, still haven't figured that out yet. When I was nine years old, my dad died. Still haven't come to grips with that. My sister, a few years ago, what, 10 years ago now, I think it was. I can't even remember. Kind of messed that up in my head, too. My sister, my, my, my rock, died. Don't know how to, still having trouble working on that. So I can't disparage him for losing his mom and, and going through it. I can't. I don't know what their relationship was like. I knew Dr. West a little bit. I don't know what their relationship was like. But it must have been really strong for him to feel as strongly as he did about his mother to not be able to deal with the other basic things in his life that he needs to be able to deal with. Like not having a bunch of yes people around you. Like not surrounding yourself with a group of people who are, are, are attention seekers. Kanye West created this world for himself. We all watched it. We either liked it or we didn't. Any other hot take you got, save it. Because you had an opportunity to not have to bother with it. Now he is back. Got a new album coming out with Nas. Got two more projects coming out after that. One of them being his own. Of course, it's publicity time. You're trying to get people to buy your product because you got to sell your product because you put yourself in a position.
all of the hot takes I read have been so disappointing. You know what social media has done? It has pointed out how stupid people really are. Oh, yes, it has. And before I play this next record, because I, I, I want to move on and I don't want to talk about him today all day. All I'm saying is. If you are a Chicagoan and you can hear my voice and you know that man or know people who know him, your obligation, your only obligation is to encourage those people who can actually get to him to talk to him. Pull his coat. Fix his head if you can and make him wrap his mind around in a, a, a different point of view. Free thought is wonderful, but you have to have an agenda if you're trying to do that. And I don't know if he has an agenda. and I don't know where he's going, but I'll be damned if I sit here and listen to people just beat him up when we need all of the allies we can get. Fix the situation by talking to him, not talking about how horrible he is. The world doesn't work that way. That's you. Maybe you need to fix you. Size matters. Size matters. Cliff Kyle Seismankowski. And with this episode of Size Matters, I'm Jess. I'm Kyle. Uh See you next time. We're out. Very short night, guys. Thanks, Roger, right? Yeah. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, take it easy. Ciao, dude. Ah, uh, oh, Jamie, come here for a sec. <clears throat> Did you guys finally record something? Yeah, yeah, but it's horrible and full of yawns. Hey, weird question. Can I fire that engineer? Why? He was tired and yawning, which made us tired and yawn. Look, guys, he has a condition where he always looks and sounds like he's yawning. Get the rock out of here. That sounds like a load of bullshit. It's real. Look, please try not to make this into a thing. He's he's pretty sensitive about it. Okay, but the thing that I'm making is that yawning is scientifically contagious. I don't want to. We hear was it. we was yawning through the whole recording process. It's unusable. Look, stop. Yawning is not contagious. That's a myth. And and please don't. Oh, look. Here here comes Roger. Guys, how's it going? I'm friggin' exhausted. Quit it. Yeah, it was a long session. Jamie, can I, can I check out the DI box? I'm recording a combo tomorrow. Yeah, they're in the... Excuse me. Um, they're in the... Oh, they're behind the... Okay. I know what you're doing. No, funny. no, dude, I'm not making fun of you. It, it's just... Yawning is contagious? You guys suck. Tell you what. Do his brain not get enough oxygen or something? Great. He's gone. Problem solved. Excellent work, Jamie. He's not gone, Jess. Roger's the best damn engineer in Chicago, and you guys better make it up to him somehow. What? How? Mmm. Uh-huh. Station manager privileges here. He's your guest for the next week. That is f- Size matters. Size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Welcome back to Size Matters. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Jess. This week we're turning the mics around and talking to our engineer, Roger Huber. The episode about Bridgeport Squirrels will be heard next week. Maybe. Roger, you've been a part of the recording scene for about 20 years, correct? Yes, that is correct. Mostly recording classical music. That's not a surprise. Listen. I know you guys are doing this as a favor to Jamie, so I don't quit. Yes, that's the truth. 
the congratulations. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Yeah, do people often do things for you out of pity and whatnot? I'm only one of four people on the planet who had this disorder uh, and is yet to be named. Uh, uh, Alright, what else? In the past few years, I have become a motivational speaker and also a scientist who conducts sleep studies. Scintillating. That's great. Uh, it is. Jamie. How is traffic out there on the roads? Uh, well, multiple accidents seem to be popping up on Lakeshore Drive. Uh, the Ike, Cermak, Halstead, Loomis, and oh. Oh, right outside the studio. That's not good. Time for some live reporting. It looks like they're coming in here. What's the meaning of this? We were just giving a traffic report. Oh, what's with this oh. snooze fest you got on? Yeah, Who right. do you think you are? Who am I? I'm Eddie Sundown. Who? He was on Size Matters episode number 50. Go back and listen to it for a point of reference, you nerd. Do what? That's right, fella. I help people fall asleep. I don't put them to sleep like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard all about it. Even bored me so much I crashed my car. Maybe you fell asleep at the wheel, Nibron. Do you really think you can make me fall asleep? What the? Uh, guys, let's cut to underwriting announcements and stuff. <sighs> This thing. Lumpin Radio is brought to you by Undertown's Lem Shems and Carmichael's. Caring for your Shem area since 1966, Lem Shems provide trusses, harnesses, goat powders, lifts, towelettes, specifics, and more. <sighs> Just past Diaper Hill, it's Lem Shems and Carbonicles. Love your Shem. And we're back. Let's see if Roger has what it takes to talk Kyle to sleep. Ain't gonna happen. I don't know, Eddie. He's pretty uh, good at what he does. Kyle, you gotta stay awake. Don't make me look bad here. You know what? I'm already so tired of all this. Let's just do it. We're gonna put one minute on the clock. Ready, set, sleep. You know, this is actually one heck of a challenge, Jess. This could unseat Eddie Sundown as Bridgeport Sandman. You can really see Eddie wanting to intervene here. This is tough to watch. I mean, what is Roger even talking about? Actually, I have no idea. His yawns are so contagious and he is so boring. Yeah, for years leading up to this event. Sorry, Jess. Hmm. Kyle suffered from sleep disorders. Oh, I was not aware of that. You know, Eddie Sundown's sleeper holds are pretty much the only thing that gets Kyle an honest night's sleep, as heard in Size Matters 35. Well, it looks like Kyle is... Yep, he's asleep. Dang it! You think you got a gift? There's only one Sandman in Bridgeport. This ain't over, not by a long... Stop yawning! Okay, guys, chill down. Um, Jamie, what's up with Kyle? Wow, Kyle's sleepwalking. He's about to go full-on night terror if I don't do something fast. I got this. Step aside. Kyle, the two years Henry Davis Thoreau lived in what he called a deliberate life on the shore of all the pines. A quaint little spot on his property of his... Whoa! 
I'll, I'll distract him. Eddie, you circle around. Somebody just shake him. Won't work. He's a deep sleeper. Hey, Kyle. Kyle, over here. Hey. Oh, it's like he's a zombie. Can he see us? He can only see whatever's in the nightmare. Hey, Kyle. Back off. I will karate chop you right in the... No, no. Eddie, now apply the sleeper hold. What, what is happening? This should help me set a sleep cycle. <coughs> what happened? You had a night terror. Oh, that was crazy. And my chokehold is still the number one sleep aid in Bridgeport. Roger. <sighs> Excuse me. You're fired. This week on The Trump Diaries, an anonymous White House official describes a remarkable internal resistance to Trump. Brett Kavanaugh dissembles in front of withering congressional questions. Barack Obama gets back into the ring. And it's your fault if Trump gets impeached. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 595, September 6th. An anonymous senior Trump administration official published an op-ed in the New York Times that claimed aides had sought a 25th Amendment solution to Trump, but decided against it due to the constitutional crisis it would cause. The editorial went on to further claim, quote, there is a quiet resistance within the administration of people choosing to put country first, and that Americans should know there are adults in the room who fully recognize what is happening. We are trying to do what is right even when Donald Trump won't. The official went on to criticize Trump's amorality and reckless decision-making. Trump responded, calling the editorial treasonous, and later said, this is what we have to deal with. They don't like Donald Trump, and I don't like them. He later said on Twitter that the Times must, for national security purposes, turn him over to the government at once. Trump also claimed protesting should be illegal after a Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing was disrupted. Trump called it, quote, embarrassing for the country to allow protesters. You don't even know what side the protesters are on. Kavanaugh challenged whether Roe versus Wade was the settled law of the land in a leaked 2003 email he wrote while serving in the George Bush White House. The email was concealed from Democrats by Republicans. It was leaked by an unknown source to the AP. Subsequently, Senator Cory Booker released 12 pages of confidential emails on racial profiling, affirmative action, and other racial issues. Booker acknowledged that he would, quote, be knowingly violating the rules, saying, quote, I openly invite and accept the consequences. These emails being withheld from the public have nothing to do with national security. Bring the charges. Kavanaugh also dissembled during a tense questioning session with Kamala Harris, who implied he had met with Trump's personal lawyers in connection with the Russian investigation. Said Harris, I think you are thinking of someone and you don't want to tell us. She followed up by saying, we have reason to believe that a conversation happened and we are continuing to pursue that. Kavanaugh was also accused of using stolen emails by Pat Leahy in another uncomfortable showdown. The United Kingdom charged two officers in Russia's military intelligence with attempted murder for poisoning a former Russian spy in England in March. The Five Eyes nations all agreed with Britain's assertion that the Russian agents were behind the attack, which also killed a British national. Vladimir Putin described the two named men as ordinary citizens. Day 596, September 7th. Barack Obama called Trump a threat to democracy in his first major political speech since leaving the White House. Speaking in Illinois, Obama accused Trump and Republicans of practicing the politics of fear and resentment. Republicans are, quote, utterly unwilling to find the backbone to safeguard the institutions that make our democracy work. This is not normal. How hard can it be saying that Nazis are bad? 
The fallout from the anonymous op-ed that said Trump's own staff is working against him continued to consume Washington, with several high-profile administration figures issuing denials. Vice President Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo both denied being the author. Trump called the report treason and said the Times, which published the op-ed, should, quote, unmask the official. Trump also called on Jeff Sessions to investigate, quote, Jeff should reinvestigating who the author of that piece was because I really believe it's national security. Trump then told his supporters in a Montana rally, quote, it'll be your fault if he gets impeached. Trump told supporters that, quote, you are voting for which party controls Congress. As for impeachment, you didn't go out to vote. That's the only way it could happen. Trump also claimed he fell asleep during Obama's speech. Insiders say that Trump is actually deeply concerned with Obama's reemergence of the political field as he is denying Trump headlines. George Papadopoulos was sentenced to 14 days in jail after lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russians. Papadopoulos was also ordered to pay a $9,500 fine and perform community service. Trump administration plans to ignore a court ruling in order to detain immigrant children with their parents indefinitely. Trump is directing ICE to ignore the Flores Settlement Agreement, a federal consent decree that banned infinite detention some 20 years ago. Day 597, September 8th. The sentencing of George Papadopoulos revealed the news that the Trump campaign team was fully aware of his effort to set up a Trump-Putin meeting. Said Papadopoulos, quote, I actively sought to leverage my contacts with the professor, that is a British source connected with Vladimir Putin, the campaign was fully aware of what I was doing. Continued to say that Trump was open to this idea and Jeff Sessions was quite enthusiastic. That professor, Joseph Mifsud, actually may be dead. Mifsud disappeared shortly after his name emerged as a key figure in the investigation into Russian interference. Investigators have so far failed to track him down. Day 598, September 9th. The Trump administration met with rebels and dissidents planning a coup in Venezuela last year against Nicolas Maduro. Those meetings went nowhere. It became apparent the rebels did not have the manpower or the organization to carry out such a mission. Included in that meeting was a military commander who was on the U.S. sanctions list of corrupt officials. Trump has openly mused about invading that nation. Michael Cohen offered to rip up the NDA between Trump and Stormy Daniels. Trump's attorney, Charles Harder, called for Daniels to immediately dismiss Trump from her defamation lawsuit. Daniels' lawyer called the move a legal stunt to prevent Trump from being deposed at criminal trial. Trump already has to be deposed in the trial of Summer Zervos. She has accused Trump of sexual harassment on the set of The Apprentice. And Stephen Miller was rebuked by his rabbi on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Neil Cummins Daniels of Beth Shir Shalom denounced Miller for his role in separating immigrant families. Quote, the actions that you now encourage Trump to take make it obvious to me that you didn't get my or our Jewish message. That notion is completely antithetical to everything I know about Judaism, Jewish law, and Jewish values. Day 599, September 10th. The Trump administration threatened the International Criminal Court with sanctions if it pursued an investigation of American troops in Afghanistan. Claiming the court is illegitimate, John Bolton said he would ban its judges and prosecutors from entering the USA and sanction their funds in the U.S. financial system. We will prosecute them in the U.S. criminal system. We will do the same for any company or state that assists the ICC investigation of Americans. Bolton also announced the USA would shut down the Palestine Liberation Organization's office in Washington. The ICC responded saying they would not be deterred from their investigation. Unusually, the Trump administration is considering sanctions against senior Chinese officials. Beijing has been detaining hundreds of thousands of ethnic Uyghur Muslims in large internment camps. Trump had previously declined to take action against China over any human rights issues. Trump is planning to weaken rules to make it much easier for energy companies to release methane into the atmosphere. The EPA plans to weaken an Obama-era requirement that companies monitor and repair methane leaks. Methane is among the most potent greenhouse gas. It is roughly 25 times more effective than carbon dioxide when it comes to trapping heat in our atmosphere. 
Industry spokespeople chaired that decision, with one saying it, quote, came down to who the administration trusted. The last administration trusted environmentalists. Day 600, September 11th. Trump began the remembrances of September 11th by blaming FBI agents Peter Strzok and Lisa Page for employing, quote, a media leak strategy to undermine his administration. He then accused the FBI and Justice Department for doing nothing about it. Much later in the day, Trump tweeted, 17 years since September 11th. Trump claimed he was totally prepared for Hurricane Florence, which he described as tremendously big and tremendously wet with tremendous amounts of water. Trump added that the incredibly successful response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico a year ago was one of the best jobs that's ever been done. In fact, nearly 3,000 people died in Puerto Rico in one of the deadliest hurricanes ever, and millions of pounds of food, clothing, and water rotted due to a botched rollout in that territory. Also, $10 million was diverted from FEMA's budget yesterday to ICE. That money was used to set up immigration detention centers. Russia is the main suspect in the mysterious illnesses that befell American personnel in Cuba and China. Workers of those embassies are believed to have been targeted with microwaves or sophisticated electromagnetic weapons. And two PACs in Maine raised over a million dollars for a challenge to Senator Susan Collins should she vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Collins called it bribery. Day 601, September 12th. Republican pollsters now believe the Senate is in play. Calling the state of their party a shipwreck, Mitch McConnell acknowledged that races in Texas, Virginia, and Indiana are breaking away from the Republican Party. Quote, I hope when the smoke clears, we'll still have a majority. The Republican Party has already resigned to losing the House, but at one point thought they would pick up seats in the Senate. Democrats now lead Republicans by 14 points in the generic ballot. The Midwest has completely soured on Trump due to his tariffs hitting farmers. A new investigative book shows that Trump has ties to Russian mafia figures that stretch back 30 years. The author, Craig Unger, said in a summary, the Russian mafia are essentially state actors. They took Trump from being $4 billion in debt to becoming a multi-billionaire again, and they fueled his political ambitions. This means Trump was in bed with the Kremlin as well, whether he knew it or not. A new poll says that just 38% of Americans approve of Trump. 42% of them say Trump is not intelligent. 60% of them think he is a liar. In addition, more people approve of Robert Mueller than of Trump. More people also trust the news media to tell the truth than they do Donald Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting Left spoke with Pat Thomas, the author of Did It, Yippee to Yuppie, Jerry Rubin, American Revolutionary. Thomas talked about Rubin's activism, the lessons the yippies have for modern protesters, and how 1968 still informs today's politics. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Let's go back. Let's let's go back a little bit to uh, uh, Jerry's days as a anti-war, uh, anti, uh, civil rights uh, organizer. Okay. Organizer of some of the uh, biggest protests, anti-war protests we had in this country. Uh, what, uh, tell us a little bit about th- that, Jerry. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's my favorite, Jerry. Me too. Yeah. So Jerry arrives at UC Berkeley in 64 at the height of the free speech movement and he starts uh, started something called the VDC Vietnam Day Committee along with Stu Albert and some other guys and Jerry organizes something called the Teach-In and for 24 hours outside the UC Berkeley campus was 20,000 people listening to Krasner, Phil Oaks, Norman Mailer, uh, Dr. Spock, a um, whole bunch of other guys I'm forgetting. Carl Oglesby. Yeah, yep, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Then Jerry starts, again, 
when I say Jerry, I mean Jerry with a bunch of other people. Uh, starts laying down on the on the on the tracks as the troop trains go through Berkeley to Port of Oakland. So Jerry gets subpoenaed by HUAC, you know, House on American Activities Committee, and Jerry has the bright idea, excuse me, to rent a revolution American Revolutionary War outfit and print up a stack of the Declaration of Independence. So he's subpoenaed into the House of Representatives. But the minute he walks in with that Revolutionary War outfit, he's arrested by federal marshals. And he's like, hey, you can't arrest me. You asked me to come here. That makes front page news, and that gets the attention of David Dillinger in New York, legendary pacifist, and also a relatively unknown Abby Hoffman. You know, Abby has not been on the front page of the newspaper yet, and Abby makes a mental note, I gotta meet this guy. So after that, Jerry's invited to New York by Dellinger to lead a march on Washington. And before he can do that, him and Abby meet up, and those guys, along with Jim Ferrat, a bunch of other people, decide to throw $1 bills on the New York Stock Exchange, which shuts the New York Stock Exchange down. I don't even think an atomic bomb can shut the New York Stock Exchange down. So that's... Well, more than shutting it down, I mean, uh, they had these, uh, they had these uh, guys down on the floor uh, chasing dollar bills. Well, that's what shut it down, because the traders were like, well, here's money right at my feet. Why do I want to buy and sell? Um, well, they, these, are, these are examples of, uh, I mean, Jer Jerry and Abby both understood that if you could, if you could make a spectacle... Well, that's uh, right. Then you could capture uh, you could capture the media. Well, you know, you guys are SDS guys, and, and one yeah. of the yin yangs in my book is that a lot of SDS people were not big on the yippies because they didn't think they were serious, and yet, you know, the way that Jerry and Abby looked at it is by using that media spectacle, they were grabbing the front page more than like a long, you know, political science essay. Well, on, we we SDSers learned from them. Yeah, at least I did. I mean, I would, right. I especially Abby. I used to, I used to watch him mm -hmm. uh, get up in the middle of a in a crowd at, at, during the Columbia Dumb University students. strike, sure. uh, student strike. I see him get up in the middle of the of the floor, yeah, or just out in the hallway. And next thing I know, there's a crowd around him, and he's yeah, and. Uh, I, I just admired the hell out of the way he, you know, he he he, uh, he did that. <coughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in the music so business, and we, I always tell musicians, no one ever got a Grammy for being subtle. Right? Yeah, so we didn't, we didn't, uh, not take him seriously, not take the uh, the Yippies seriously, not take Abby and Jerry seriously. We did take him seriously, mm -hmm. and we worked together with them on a lot of different things. Sure. Uh, when the Democratic convention. Uh, protests were organized. Mm -hmm. uh, we opposed them at first. Right. We opposed the. Uh, we opposed the. Uh, what we saw as an invasion of uh, of uh, white uh, young mm -hmm. hippies coming out uh, to Chicago and uh, you know doing their uh, Pegasus thing and right. <laughs> sleeping in the park, you know, and all that. And sure. but bringing down heat on those of us who were. I guess we did think we, we took ourselves a lot more seriously. Yeah. And we, we, we had people doing community organizing, and then we mm -hmm. were concerned about the people in the black community yeah. who would take the heat and the repression after the Yippies all went home. Right. But, sure. but later, when we, after we met with them and saw the, uh, 
saw their seriousness mm-hmm. and also saw the uh, you know the size of uh, the crowds of young people coming in. Yeah, uh, many of them coming and crashing on our floors, and you right. know, then we we changed our our views and we yeah. we, we joined in with the in the leadership of the protests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, I digress a little bit, but no, 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 no. But, it's, uh, it's, but it's the point you were making talk. is that the point yeah. you were making was the, about Jerry as a uh, a media savvy organizer, right? Which uh, that kind of media savviness and use of uh, of social networking mm-hmm. has really become the main mode of organizing protests today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when Jerry died in 94, personal computers were just starting to come around and the internet, you know, but, you know, Jerry was fascinated by that. And according to conversations with his friends, he, you know, he kind of saw this coming, you know, the, the, you know, the, I mean, Facebook hadn't been invented yet, but he was envisioning similar, similar ideas. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's let's talk about the march on Washington for a moment because Dellinger originally was going to march on the Capitol, and Jerry said no. The heart of the military-industrial complex is the Pentagon; it'll mean more. And then Abby jumped in and said, "Well, let's levitate the Pentagon. Let's levitate it. Yeah. Let's levitate." And one of the things I found out in my five years of research for this book we're talking about, called "Did It," Jerry Rubin, American Revolutionary, is that. Jerry was called down to Washington before the march by like the National Park Service or something and had to negotiate with the government <laughs> for how many feet they could levitate the Pentagon. Uh, I love that story, right? Truth is always stranger than fiction. And the other great story uh, for you kids out there that think these guys had a Twitter account or, or there was a, a, a yippee Facebook page, this was all word of mouth. And so, uh, President LBJ heard about this levitation thing and he made an announcement to the press, like, I'm not going to let these dirty hippies do this. That became front page news. And Jerry said, thank you, LBJ. We went from 10,000 people knowing about our event to 3 million. Uh, so, yeah, the hippies. But, it, it, but the, yeah, and I remember, I remember that protest very well. And uh, I also remember that it, it ended in kind of a, not a bloodbath, but a pretty brutal attack on the, the protesters. Yeah, not, I mean, compared to Chicago, uh, 68, I would say the 67 thing was a, more of a frolic in the park. I mean, there's the, the famous picture of the blonde turtleneck sweater hippie putting the flower into the barrel of a gun. You know, that's at 68. October, that's October 67 at uh, the Pentagon. Oh, that was at the Pentagon, right. right. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't want to say, like, this is what happened. But from, from my research, I, I think Pentagon was a lot of arrest, but not too much bloodshed. That came a little later. de clima tropical guerra caliente del oriente peruano somos los milón de clima tropical tierra caliente del oriente peruano y cuando quieras te llevaré 
para bailar, para gozar Y cuando quieras te llevaré para bailar, para gozar Somos los mirlos, no gusta el río y la belleza que adorna nuestra selva Somos los mirlos, chicos peruanos, no gusta el monte que engalana nuestra tierra Pura selva, pura selva, vamos. Y las palmas arriba, las palmas arriba, vamos. De Perú para Chicago, Lupa en Radio. Siempre contigo Somos los nidos de clima tropical Tierra caliente del oriente peruano Somos los nidos de clima tropical Tierra caliente del oriente peruano Y cuando quieras te llevaré Para bailar, para gozar Y cuando quieras te llevaré Para bailar, para gozar Somos los mirlos no gusta el río y su belleza que adorna nuestra selva. Somos los mirlos, chicos peruanos. No gusta el monte que engalana nuestra tierra. Los mirlos para el Perú y el mundo. Y para Chicago. En Rayo Lupin. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.